Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. A few years back, a movement known as the New Atheism launched a ferocious, fresh attack on religion and especially Christianity. Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Daniel Dennett, who self-titled themselves the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse of Religion's Undoing, they made the case that it was time to ditch religion for good. And one of their the things that was so interesting about their arguments is that they were not so much rational arguments against the existence of God, but moral and social arguments against the goodness of religion. The British atheist Christopher Hitchens, to take one example, he published a book called God is Not Good, How Religion Poisons Everything. And the case was an easy one to make. Religion is about control, about taking free-thinking people and making them think a certain way. Religion is about power. It opposes those who cannot or will not submit to its demands. And it privileges those who successfully meet its rules and uphold its values. Religion villainizes those with whom it disagrees, and the consequence of that is arrogance, pride, and violence, and other behaviors that demean and destroy the flourishing of human society. Religion condemns people to servitude of some deity who just demands relentless praise and places impossible demands on them. Those demands crush diversity and do not lead to the freedom that religion supposedly promises. That was the critique. And what's interesting about this is that many Christians, and perhaps even Jesus himself, would agree with this assessment of religion. One Christian writer, Dallas Willard, he puts it this way. He says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive and dissatisfied. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Or take, for example, the Apostle Paul. He writes a letter to the early church in a place called Galatia. And he uh, is noticing the way that some of the people in that church were trying to make new converts who were not Jewish, Jewish by circumcision. They were saying, if you want to really follow God, you've got to not only believe in Jesus, you've got to get circumcised as well. And Paul, who was pretty furious at this, says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And then there's Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 23 launches his longest 
sustained attack against the Pharisees anywhere in the gospel, and what he homes in on is hypocrisy. The Pharisees do not practice what they teach, Jesus argues. They're blind guides who deceive themselves and the people who listen to them. They project one thing externally, but internally their hearts reveal another. In short, Jesus says, they practice their religion wrongly because they have no integrity. And what Jesus longs for is a people of integrity. And so this passage is a warning against the ways that religion practiced wrongly can poison everything. It's a warning because Jesus begins by addressing the crowds and the disciples. He moves on to talking to the scribes and Pharisees directly a little later, but he starts by talking to the crowds and the disciples, those who wouldn't have called themselves Pharisees. He's already told the disciples at another point in the gospel to beware, to be on their guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. And the implication is that even those who call themselves followers of Jesus can run the risk of the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus hates. And so we want to heed Jesus' warning this morning, and we want to ask whether any of it may be more true of us than we'd like. And we want to see what the remedy to hypocrisy is. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try and open this up and make some sense of it. And so the first thing that we're going to notice from this passage is that religion practiced wrongly places heavy burdens on people. From our vantage point, this side of the New Testament, it's easy to be critical of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. I don't think there'd be anybody around who would call themselves a Pharisee and it's a bit comical, the idea of the Pharisees. But we have to remember that the Pharisees were the kind of people who believed in the entire Old Testament. They believed in a resurrection from the dead. They believed in a spiritual reality. They believed that the Messiah would come. And they believed that the reason that the promises had not been fulfilled to Israel was because people weren't taking God's word, and in particular God's law, seriously enough. Of all the people who were active, of all the groups who were active at the time of Jesus, the Sadducees who had sidled up to the authorities, the Essenes who had cut themselves off as a separatist community, and the Zealots who thought that the only way to get a pure community was to wage war against Rome... Of all of those groups, the Pharisees had the theology that was closest to Jesus' theology. And yet the way they took their theology and applied it led to distortions that burdened people. And according to Jesus in verse 15, makes them converts of hell. Wow. So take a look at verse 4. Jesus says, They, that's the Pharisees and the scribes, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. See, the Pharisees, they were masters of making religion burdensome. They took the law of God, all 613 commands and regulations that they had discerned in 
the first five books of the Bible, and they put more rules around them. It was like building a fence so that if you stumbled, you stumbled at one of these additional commands, not at the actual law of God. And the image that Jesus uses here is of putting a load on an animal's back and tying it up, and it's so heavy and unbalanced that it causes them to stumble. It placed an unnecessary and debilitating burden on people, and they were unwilling to help those who struggled with the burdens. Instead, they used these regulations as a way of puffing themselves up because they could keep them. They were doing a good job of them, and it was a way of demonstrating how right they were. What's more, and and just as importantly, they, they were requiring things that God didn't require. And that's a helpful definition of what burdensome religion does. It puts religious obligations on people that God himself does not require. Which raises a question for us. What are the obligations that we might be in danger of unnecessarily requiring of people? Maybe it's an obligation to think or vote a certain way when it comes to politics. Maybe it's an obligation to hold a particular position on secondary matters of Christian belief. Maybe it's to use a certain Bible translation or to dress a certain way or to turn up to enough church events or to serve as much as others do. Maybe it's the pressure of conformity, of not giving space to doubt, which makes doubt feel like spiritual failure. Or an obligation on the amount a Christian should work or not work, or whether a Christian mum should return to work or not. There are many people out there who've been hurt by an experience of church or Christians. And they're asking, how much of all of this do I have to believe in order to be a follower of Jesus? And when secondary things take first place, they crush people. They become an unbearable burden. Or as Jesus says in verse 13, they lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. And so can I be bold and say that if Christianity feels burdensome to you, there's a decent chance that you haven't properly understood it. Here's why I think that. You'll see it come up on the screen, a quote. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden is light. That's Jesus' promise. He says, take my load. It's better for you. It won't crush you or destroy you but instead it will free you and give you purpose and hope. 
It still requires discipleship. Yes, it still requires you to follow Jesus. Yes, and so it's not what some people have called cheap grace, which is grace without any obligation. Jesus was clear in last week's passage that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, yes, there's a need for discipleship and obedience in the Christian life. But obedience for the Christian flows out of the secured love and acceptance of God, not in order to secure the love and acceptance of God. It, become, it comes out of already having experienced and known God's love, not to try and win God's love. And what obedience is about isn't about scrupulous observance of countless little and insignificant things like tithing your herbs. Did you notice that? Tithing mint and dill and cumin. Those things are small in the context of God's law. Jesus says there are big things, weightier things. Verse 24, love, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Religious, religion practiced wrongly heaps up the burdens, but Jesus says that his burden is light. Secondly, one thing to notice is that religion practiced wrongly is about self-seeking status. Now, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I don't know if you know what a phylactery is. It's, it's totally reasonable if you don't. Uh, it, it's a box. And if you see, if you ever meet an Orthodox Jew, you, you might see them still wearing this today that was worn on the front of the forehead. And in it, it contained some snippets of the Old Testament law, the most important passages. This is one that's being dug up from the Qumran community around the time of Jesus. And there you can see four phylacteries in a phylactery box. And these would be worn as a way of obeying God's law. Because the law had said that people were to bind the commandments to their arms and they were to wear them on their foreheads and people read that and they said, well, we better wear them on our foreheads and we better bind them around our arms. And the Pharisees, they said, well, if we're going to have them, we better have the biggest phylacteries around. And so they made their phylacteries broad. I mean, it could have been hard to see, right? And they had their garments, their robes, and they wanted to make sure that they observed a law that said that you should put tassels on the end, on the corners of your robe, as a way of reminding yourself of the commandments of God. And they said, well, if we need to have tassels, then we are going to have long tassels. And all of it was done not because they wanted to honor and love God, but because they loved the praise of people. Jesus says in verse 6, they love to have the place of honor 
at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. In Jesus' day, a banquet uh, typically happened around a U-shaped table and the host would sit at the centre of the U and then the most esteemed guest would sit on either side of him and then as you got down to the edges of the U where you couldn't even hear the conversation going on in the middle, that was for the, the people who were less important. And Jesus is saying they, they want to be right there in the middle, the places of honour. They want elite access, the prime seats. But in all of this, Jesus' point is pretty simple. He says, religion practiced wrongly, it's all for show. It's all for show. They don't practice their religion for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves. They don't really love God. What they love is their own reputation. And we might live at what is the most image-conscious time in all of history. Have you ever thought about that? We share photos, videos, and other content on social platforms that have algorithms in them that are deliberately designed to favor posts that generate more likes, loves, or other reactions. I don't know if you remember what it was like before 2009, but 2009 was when Facebook introduced the like button. And suddenly, it became possible to post something in order to get likes, to have a performative aspect of social media. And suddenly, we were posting things and then checking back every 15 minutes or five to see who else had added their approving thumbs up. And that has changed human behavior. It's hard to have a great moment now and just have a great moment. Because we're always documenting our moments rather than enjoying them. We feel that others need to know that we're having great moments. I was reading uh, an excerpt this week from a new book called The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Trans Threatens the People You Lead uh, by author Chris Martin. And he writes this, You'll see it up on the screen. He says, social media is revolutionary because the role of the performer, once reserved for the classically trained and Hollywood-bound, is now available to all and avoidable by none. This is why the jump from the television in our living rooms to social media and its ever-present accessibility in our pockets is markedly different and more dramatic than the jump from the local theater to the television. The move from the local theatre to the television, which happened in, in the uh, 40s and 50s, simply changed the way that we consumed entertainment. You didn't have to go out for it, you could do it from your home. But the move from television to social media and smartphones made us entertainers. We used to be the audience, now we're the audience and the act. And the point is that we're all performers now. And while that might be less true, I think it is less true if you're part of a generation that doesn't use social internet very much. I suspect that it is the case that all of us, even if it's not online, feel the desire to be seen to be doing the right things. And that can be as true in the church as it is in the world. And so let me ask you a question. 
when was the last time that you made an adjustment in your behavior so that you'd be perceived differently by people whose opinions matter to you? Maybe you're adjusting when you're with God's people, putting on a face of maturity or passion for God or spiritual depth or prayerfulness. Well, maybe the temptation is the opposite. It's to adjust how you speak and act when you're with your non-church-going friends, deliberately obscuring or downplaying your faith so that you won't look like one of those serious Christians. But the problem with adjusting the external to win the approval of people around you is that it widens the gap between the real you and the version that you project. Jesus talks about this in this passage as the difference between the inside and the outside. He says there, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. It's a metaphor for their lives. Meticulously clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. He makes the point again, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead. So also you look on the outside righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, you Pharisees, you might look good on the outside, but inside there is death and decay. There's nothing healthy about you. It's all fake. And that's what hypocrisy is. It means to wear a mask, to play act, to practice your religion or your behavior for show. It's the opposite of integrity, which is when your inside and your outside are aligned. And the truth is, being a person of integrity is incredibly difficult. Alan de Botton, the atheist popular philosopher, has a brilliant insight related to this in his book, Status Anxiety. He says, the attentions of others matter to us because we are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value. As a result of which affliction, we tend to allow others' appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. And one of the great tasks of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to become the kind of person who lives for a different audience, who lives before an audience of one, where what matters to you most is not what other people think, but what God thinks. And what's so freeing about this is that unlike human appraisal, which can flick and change, God's judgment on you is already cast. It's decided. It doesn't shift. It's not based on your performance. In fact, it's based on Christ's performance. And Christ was perfectly obedient to his Father, perfectly loving. He went to the cross on your and my behalf. 
And now we don't need to worry that God might be angry or disappointed in us because in Christ we are welcomed and embraced and the relationship that we have with God is like an affectionate father with his child. That's how God sees you if you are in Christ. And I don't know who needs to hear this, but maybe you're here today and you haven't experienced the Father's embrace. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. You might know intellectually that God loves you and that Christ died for you, but that truth hasn't sunk from here to here. You know it because when you look at your faith, it's a showy faith. You want to look the part. It gives you a sense of identity and belonging. You like the acceptance and friendship you find in our community, but there's a wide gap between the internal and the external, a gap that you're always trying to maintain rather than bringing it into the presence of God so that it might be narrowed and closed by His grace. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to do something about that, to welcome Jesus, to experience God's embrace and let him love you, to come to him and to delight in him and in his love. See, religion practiced wrongly is about self-seeking status. It deceives others and it will ultimately deceive you too. A third point then, and one more reflection for us, just briefly as we conclude, religion practiced wrongly resists Christ's heart. One of the things you have to come to terms with when you read a passage like this is how angry and indignant Jesus gets. Blind guides, he calls them, hypocrites, and over and over, woe to you. And it's like, that's not Jesus, meek and mild. That's not happy Jesus, loving Jesus, is it? Our four-month-old son, Asher, has taken to screeching like a pterodactyl this week. And Ali uh, jokingly started calling him a banshee. Do you know what a banshee is? I had to look it up. I didn't know. Uh, the only banshees I remember are from playing Halo on Xbox as a teenager. <laughs> But Wikipedia told me that a banshee is a female spirit in Irish folklore who heralds the death of a family member by screaming or wailing. And that's not far from Jesus here. He's not a spirit, of course, but in the ancient world, when someone important died, the family would sometimes hire a mourner to announce the death of the person. And so here's Jesus, and one commentator suggests that he's like a professional mourner whom Yahweh has hired to announce the death of the religious system the Pharisees have imposed. It's strong language, but it's mournful language. And you see that most clearly in verses 37 to 39, where Jesus turns from speaking just to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he addresses the whole city. He says, Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The image Jesus uses is of a hen with her baby chicks in the face of intense danger, a flood or a storm or a fire. And mother hens have been known to do this, shielding their chicks from the heat of the blaze under their wings. And when the fire has raged through, the mother hen might be dead, but the chicks are alive under her wings. And Jesus says to the city that will string him up to die on a Roman cross in just a few days, I have longed to be your mother hen, to shield you and grant you safe passage through the judgment against sin and evil that I am about to bear. That is my heart towards you, but you would not come. See, religion practiced wrongly resists grace. It has no time for grace because it's too busy putting heavy burdens on people and justifying itself. It has no desire for grace because it's too busy chasing after self-seeking status. And this is so important to get because the key difference between a disciple and a Pharisee is not that disciples have no gap between the inside and the outside. It's not that Christians are perfect, whereas hypocritical Pharisees are not. No, all of us have the gap. All of us, even followers of Jesus, can be guilty of hypocrisy from time to time in our lives. The key difference between a disciple and a Pharisee is that disciples deal with the gap by repentance, by acknowledging that there's a problem, by saying that the gap exists because we love other things more than we love God. Christianity, as far as I can tell, is the only religion in the world that says that you have to repent not just of the bad things you do, but also of the good things that you do with wrong motives. And so we say to Jesus, Lord, save me from my self-righteousness, as well as, Lord, save me from my immorality. We're going to sing a song that tells the story of Jesus in Jerusalem, journeying towards the cross. And let me just read to you a few of the lyrics. The band can come up as I do. The song says, see him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing, dust that formed the watching crowds, takes the blood of Jesus, feel the earth is shaking now, see the veil is split in two, as he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. So would you pray with me that God would keep us from hypocritical religion and draw us to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for even hard passages like this one. Thank you that Jesus is at his most fearsome when he is condemning that which is so subtle that it could blind us if we don't. He needs to speak strongly against it because otherwise it would be easy to be fooled by it. But as we listen to him, we see that there are so many ways in which we can be tempted to practice religion for ourselves and not to follow Jesus for your sake, for your glory, for your name. And so, Father, would you strengthen us? Would you fill us with your love? For any of us who've not yet experienced God's embrace, your embrace, Lord, we pray, meet us. Teach us what it means to be beloved children. And help us to be the kind of people who orient all our lives around your love. And so love you and love others in joyful response. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.